Good evening. Let's see you all here tonight. You have a copy of the scriptures. Open it to First Samuel chapter 15 as we continue our series through First Samuel. Last week, and actually the last couple of weeks, we started seeing some faults that Saul has, some character issues that starts showing up in his life. You know, a few chapters ago, he, he didn't wait for Samuel when Samuel had told him, go here, wait for me. And instead, Saul started getting very anxious. And so he went ahead and started offering sacrifices before the prophet Samuel came in. And he kind of overstepped his bounds as a king to take the role of a prophet as well and wasn't patient and just started saying, well, I figured, hey, this was coming down. I needed to do something making excuses. And we saw him kind of rush things along. He didn't wait for Samuel as he offered that sacrifice. You know, when Jonathan had this incredible victory that he basically initiated on his own with his armor bearer, after the rest of the people came and kind of jumped in, all of a sudden Saul blew the trumpet and kind of celebrated as if it was his victory and not really Jonathan's. He kind of took the credit at that point and even putting down his own son, uh, he had commandments that no one should eat of anything. It wasn't God's commandments. Saul was just kind of being pushy. And asserting himself in, in his role as king. And Jonathan didn't know about it, so Jonathan took and ate that honey and his eyes lit up. And then later on, his dad found out that he did eat that honey. And he, he said, well, do I have to die for eating honey? And his dad said, yeah, of course. Which Michael did a great job talking about last week. Of course you have to die for eating the honey. It's like, Why? Well, because I'm king, and we see that there's this problem with Saul, that he is wanting this recognition, this authority, so much so that he would even want to put his son to death just to get his own recognition. But the men wouldn't let it happen. They said, no, that's not. this is the guy who won for us. This was the guy who initiated the battle, and now you're going to put him to death? It just doesn't make sense, and so we're slowly starting to see this man and what he's really made of, and it starts to to look worse and worse. You know, they have these mirrors. Guys, you might not know about this, but some of you ladies do. There are these mirrors that multiply, like they're two-time mirrors or whatever they call it, like they multiply twice as much. They're two-timing mirrors. They're, they're cheating on you. And you look at, I remember looking at one of those things and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, man, I look ugly. (laughs) You see, I I thought I shaved, but no, these little hairs sprouting out of your face in places you didn't recognize. I was going to make a comment about the ladies, but I'll leave it right now. And as we start seeing up close in Saul, we start seeing the truth of who he is, and it's not pretty. And so it's going to continue. It doesn't get better. It actually gets worse as we go from here. And so let's start in chapter 15, verse 1. We'll read the first three verses. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as, as they camp up from Egypt, came up from Egypt. Now, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So the command is clear. The Amalekites had a lot of issues. They had been enemies with Israel for a while. Some of these things that 
are talked about, you can find even in Leviticus chapter 18, kind of a list of the, the problems that some of the people in the lands had. There were a lot of perversions taking place. The Amalekites also, when the children of Israel were coming up in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it talks about how they would pick off the children of Israel that were straggling behind, those that were way in the back, they would come and take them and plunder them. So not to attack the whole nation, they just would get those stragglers. And so they have this history with the people of Israel. And so God gives this command to just lay them waste. Now, this probably provokes some thoughts. I don't know. Does it provoke any thoughts, you guys? Any? Yeah? What are the thoughts it provokes? Yeah. Why did God want Okay. Anyone else have trouble with that or do we, are we supposed to just pass on? Okay. I'm glad we have, we got that cleared up. Let's continue reading. There are things in scripture that are hard to understand. And we can come up with ideas and, you know, try and bring reason, but we don't have all the information and so it's difficult to try and make a clear understanding of all that is taking place. The word that is used for utterly destroy or totally destroy, it's kind of a surgical term. It's kind of like remove. And the idea is like removing a cancer. And so the perspective that is coming from at least Samuel to Saul is we need to remove this problem, this cancer. And that's how it's being looked at. But when we think of, well, what did the kids have to do with this problem? Well, again, if you go to Leviticus 18 and it talks about a lot of the perversions that were taking place, there was incest and a lot of other things that you can read all about yourself, since I don't want to get embarrassed and talk about those things. But there was a lot of perversity that was taking place. There might have been a lot of disease involved with some of the things that were taking place. And so this might have been... God saying, we just need to clear out this. There are times when God say, when the time of their uh, iniquity was full. And this idea of there came a time, it's like, why didn't he attack them earlier? Well, now was the time. It's almost like, I, I've waited, I've waited, now something has to be done. If the parents are dead and you have all these children, what do you do with the children? What age are the children problematic? What do you do with children that have diseases that were from the parents and some of the things the parents were involved in that are now handed down to the kids? Does that spread then into the other nation? These are questions that we I can ask, but I don't have the answer to. Just to say, it's a lot more complicated than we would just want to reason out and deal with. Just as war is. It's also important to recognize that what God is, when God is dealing with the nation of Israel at this specific time, it's not the same way that God is dealing with every nation forever or the way he wants us to deal with our neighbors. Okay. <laughs> My neighbor's name is Amalekite. That's it. Okay. <laughs> Read about it on the news. No, um, and so this is specific to a time period and the people of that time in that region. And we need to keep that in mind because otherwise we'll take what God does here and say, well, why is God like this? And we're taking a specific situation. You know, we can take the atrocities that we know of in history, the Holocaust and things like that and say, well, what should be done with all the people who were involved with that? Well, in those cases, it seems justified to, to have some kind of recompense for what they've done. But then again, we go to the children. What about the children? And that's where the questions usually arise. I don't have a clear answer that makes my own heart say, oh, good, that's fine. Except what I shared Sunday in Psalm 19, uh, verse 9, the decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. And I have faith that God is caring and more loving than I am. And so his decrees, they're right, especially for the time and the circumstances. That's the best I come up with. Anyone else got something better? I'm all for it. They're difficult things to understand. 
Well, yeah, but then the argument could be, well, but if they're raised up in a different environment, they'd be different children. It's not like Amalekites are all, you know, as infants have the Amalekite. I feel like Star Trek now, you know. They're all Romulans, you know. We must get rid of them. Uh, I know. My nerdiness just exposed, and it's television, you know. It's not even math or something, science. It's Star Trek. I I should leave now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, and we're going to see that some things do transpire because of them. They continue to be a thorn in Israel's side and even to Saul at some point. So let's move on just so we, we can kind of get through some ground. Um, and if something else jumps in your mind, we'll definitely open up some time to talk about it. Verse 4, so Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telium. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Now, from this passage, we see that there's already a division between Israel and Judah and these two nations that are going to later on separate, but they needed all of them. You've got to remember that this is a Bedouin tribe of people, okay? Israel is not this city, this nation. It's kind of a bunch of nomads that live in the same regions, actually some even miles from each other, and so they gather all these people who are from the same descendants and say, okay, we need your help, we're going to go take care of this. Verse 5, Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them, for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. And so that's nice. We can talk about that passage. There, God's being good. There's nice things happening. Verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all the peoples he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now, already we see there's a change taking place, right? Didn't Samuel say destroy everything? Now, Saul goes there, he tells the Kenites, go on, get out of here, they leave. Then he goes and he attacks, utterly destroys them, but he spares the king. And then the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. And notice that it says in verse 9, these they were unwilling to completely destroy. They were willing to destroy the ones that looked sickly and weren't healthy, but they were unwilling to destroy the others. So let's talk. Why do you think Saul spared the king? And then why do you think they were unwilling to get rid of these good-looking animals that were healthy? Agreed. There were something, right? Why waste perfectly good animals and a perfectly good king? Yeah. What else? Any other thoughts? Okay. Kind of a trophy. He's going to take him back, show himself strong. Remember, Saul's got some issues, some pride issues. He, he's wanting people to look up to him. He's got power issues. He's wanting people to respect him, even at the price of his own son. And so now we can see some of these things playing into how he is dealing with what was commanded him by Samuel from the Lord. Samuel says, get rid of them all, don't take anything alive, and now we see that's not the case. Well, sure enough, we're going to see what comes about. You know, it's almost the case. He almost gets away with it, but not quite. And so let's continue reading. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. I think this is a telling verse. First of all, God snitches 
on Saul and busts him. And God has a way of doing that. God has a way of letting things come out that need to come out. And it's also interesting, Samuel's response, how he cries out to the Lord and he cries all night long, that this was something that disturbed Samuel deeply. Also, it's interesting where it says, I regret that I have made Saul king. God regrets. I don't know, some translations might say, I repent. Does anyone have that translation? Some of the older translations. But the idea of I regret is an interesting thought. And the word means to sigh. It means to to be sorry for. It's not a change of nature, but a sorrow of heart. And I think it's important to talk about this a little bit because when we see and think of the idea of God, a lot of times it can be without care, without concern, even as we talked about why was God so unwilling to do all these things. But now God seems to be concerned and that he regrets something that happened. But how can you regret something if you knew it was going to happen? Doesn't God know what's going to happen? So how can he regret what he knows is going to happen. Does anyone else think like this, or is this my mind just going? This is, you know, it's like Genesis 6-6, you know, God regretted that he made man. What? Wait, wait, you knew this was going to happen, right? Aren't you God? Don't you know all things? How can you regret anything if you know everything? But because God is aware of everything, it doesn't mean that he is without the ability to have regret, even as we are told that we can grieve the Spirit of God. In other words, because God lives in the moment, and we don't know what that's like, God lives in this eternal present where everything is happening in a moment and he sees it all as if it's right now, it doesn't mean that we are without the ability to choose and the freedom to make choices that God still regrets. My own children have made decisions that I have regretted. And there's been times when I knew they were going to make those decisions. Not because I'm uh, omnipresent like God. It's just I knew my kids. And it's like, I know what you're thinking. And the reason I knew what they were thinking because I thought those things myself. I've been in your shoes. I've been at that age. And I've dealt with the things you're dealing with right now, and I know the choices I made, and I see you making those same choices, and there's been times where I said, listen, don't do that. But even as those words came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, you're going to do it. And then when it came about, I regretted it. Did I know it? Yeah, I kind of did. Did I regret it? Yeah, I did. And That's the emotion we see from God. Even though he knows what's going on, there is the responsibility and freedom that Saul has for the choices he's going to make and the choices we make. That when they take place, God has this regret. Remember what took place with Cain and Abel. When God rejected the one, Cain's offering, that really was a lot more involved. Cain had to plant these things and grow his own crops and and make them and gave this offering. And Abel just slaughtered an animal. It's like, that was easy. Mine was more involved, but God rejected Cain's and accepted Abel's, no doubt because that was the way God had orchestrated things. And then it says that Cain started plotting, and and God says, you know, Cain. He, He actually had a conversation with the one who did wrong. Not with the one who did right. I think that's interesting. That God had a conversation with Cain and engaged him. And he says, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But sin is crouching out the door. And it's waiting to devour you. And you must master it or it will master you. Now, why would God have that conversation with Cain if he knew he was going to kill his brother anyway? We'll find out right now. The first lifeline. (laughs) 
because God had given Cain the freedom to make a choice, and God allowed Cain to make that choice, even though he knew what the choice was going to be, it was his choice, and that grieved the heart of God. You see, God cannot have regret or grief if we don't have freedom to choose. And even though he knows all things, it's not like he made Cain choose. It's not like he made Saul disobey. He gave him the freedom, and when that choice was made, then he had the regret. Understand? The, the freedom is a big deal. And when we think of predestination, sometimes I think we think predetermination. Just because God knows everything, it doesn't mean that he caused him to do everything. He gives him the choice, and he knows what those choices are, and it still affects him because he cares about the choices we make. And that's a big deal, and I don't fully understand it, but I see it constantly in the Scripture. And I think it's an important thing to recognize and understand in that. Any thoughts or questions on that part? Yeah? Yes, we would. So, okay, go. You go first. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, but we know the choices, and we have to make them. That's our responsibility. Well, let's go on. Verse 12. After Samuel has cried out to the Lord all night, early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up some monument in what? In his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Again, we're seeing more and more who this guy is. It's me, Saul, my honor. And so now it plays into what you were saying, Alex, raising, saving the king so it could be kind of a trophy for himself. We see that playing into this. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, this is great, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Isn't that amazing? When Saul sees Samuel, he's totally unaware of what he didn't do. And isn't that the case? Don't you see people and you see them and you say, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see the problem and what's going to happen if you keep doing these things? And they're oblivious to it. You can point out things directly, and they're just oblivious. I know someone who has just a severe drinking problem. Just has cost him so much in his life. And when you try and tell him, you know, you've, drinking has caused a problem for you. Well, first there was the, you know, I think you're an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. Alcoholic someone who has to drink every day. No, I don't think that's the definition. Has alcohol caused a problem in your life? Well, sometimes. What do you mean sometimes? How many jobs have you lost? Your marriage has been lost. What does it take for it to become a problem? And why is it I can see it and everyone else can see it, but you don't see it? But that's how we are with our own faults. We're blind to them. Salt doesn't, hey, I did everything. I did it all. There's the king tied up, gagged over here. Egg gag's got a gag. And there's, you know, all the animals. That, well, we're going to see. We'll go on. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I've done everything, the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said in verse 14, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? If you've done everything, what do I hear? Something's not right. And Saul's response is classic. Saul answered, the soldiers, they brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. What, what a politician. Okay, they did what was wrong to you and your God, notice there's a separation, but we, we killed, we did the right thing, they did the wrong thing. Who's king? And so Samuel, enough! Samuel said to Saul. In other words, shut up! Let me tell you 
what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Now, before we go on and look at what the Lord told Samuel, remember that Samuel cried all night about what the Lord told him. And so as Samuel comes to talk to Saul, it is with a broken heart. He's not coming to beat him. He's not coming to just tell him, you're wrong, I'm right. He's coming after he has wept. When we have to come to someone and talk to them, bring some kind of rebuke, some kind of hard saying or words to them, what is the attitude we come to them with? And I hope we don't come to anyone until we have wept and cried over what's happened. So that we don't come with an, our own arrogance. We don't come with our own attitudes. But we come because we have concern and care. And we've already cried all night. And so now he has the ability to talk more clearly. Because he's in the right posture. Let me tell you what the Lord has said. And then Saul says, tell me. Verse 17, Samuel said, although you were once small in your eyes, your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he set you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil? In the eyes of the Lord. But I, I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag the king. I completely did it, but look, I got the king. And, and now we're going to start seeing a justification. He starts justifying what he did. I brought back Agag the king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Some powerful stuff in these verses. A couple ironic things. Saul spared Agag the king, the Amalekite. Later on, Saul would be killed by an Amalekite. He didn't get them all. And later one would actually kill him. So because he failed to do this, it's interesting that he ends up being killed by one of those. Even in Esther. Remember Haman? That wicked character in Esther's story? That was an, what do they call it? An Agagite. I think that's how you pronounce it. It was a descendant from Agag. Interesting. Just some things that, again, point to God knew what he was doing or, or wanting to get done. And when they failed, it has the repercussions of these things. And, and so he didn't obey the Lord and his kingdom was going to be taken away. And then Samuel brings this incredible disclosure about what God really wants that I, I think is really important because even though Saul was so blind to what he was doing and, and how it was going to affect his own life, God was concerned with something. And I guess we need to ask the question, what does God really care about? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? And how does that take place? How does a person get close to God? And what are the signs of a person who's close to God? Well, we know it, it's obedience, but what does obedience look like? You know, because what Saul was doing sounded good. And Michael talked about this a, a lot last week and did a great job in talking about how we can 
have legalism and look at legalism and make that the standard. And so we're going to do these things. Sacrifice. Well, sacrifice is good, right? That's what God has wanted. He's initiated these things. We're supposed to have these sacrifices. But is the sacrifice what's important? Or is the sacrifice supposed to take us to something? And what's it supposed to bring us to? Knowledge, learning, it's a good thing. But what's the learning supposed to bring you to? Because information will not stop bad behavior. It doesn't matter how much you know, it will not stop you from doing wrong things. People who know things are wrong do them all the time. And so it's not about the structure, the programs. It's about faith. It's about belief and trust that what God says is good. That what God has done is what I need and what I rely on and what I trust in. You see, information can create smart believers, but it doesn't necessarily create mature ones. I know a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge, but they're not very mature. I know uh, people who, who go to study after study after Bible study and they still struggle with the sin and the sin and the sin and they think the Bible study is going to stop them from the sin and they haven't connected the dots that it's not the information and it's not that you go to Bible study, it's where you put your confidence and trust in that keeps you either from the sin or not. The information won't get you there but the belief and trust and reliance on God will. That's the obedience. You see, the obedience is trusting in God, not knowing about God. And there are a lot of people who follow or go to church and call themselves Christians who know about God, but don't actually know God. Not actually trusting God with their lives and for faith. And, and so this is kind of the crux that we want. We want to point to something, we like to point to something that we can do instead of someone I need to be. In other words, look what the things I do. I go to church on Tuesday. I go to church on Wednesday. I go to this church. I go to this church on Thursday. And then I go and help these people on Friday. And then Sunday, I go to church three times a day. I go to this church, this church, and this church. So look at all the things I do. And we think that's going to give people an understanding of, wow, Look at you. You don't have a life. <laughs> You're at church all the time. You need to do something more. What's going on? You know, but we think that's a sign of how mature I am because I'm doing all these things. And we like to point at all the things that we do instead of the person we really are. And we put focus on the outward things instead of the inward you see, it wasn't as magnificent to obey God here. He would have came back and had nothing to show for it. Now he had a king. Now he had some sheep. We can offer to the Lord. And as we offer to the Lord, everyone's going to know we're victorious. As I bring this king and I parade him and tell the people, look what I've done, look what I've done. It's going to bring glory to me. And then people will know, hey, God's good too. But you see, obedience would have brought them back with no fanfare, no trumpets. All that would have existed was the knowledge that I did what was right. And that would have been enough if he cared about that relationship with God. If he had faith and belief in God, then that would have been enough. That's why salvation is by faith and not by the things that we do. It's not by our works. It's not by obedience to information. Relationships aren't built by the things that you do. They're built by trust in someone. It's not about regulations. It's about trust. If I can't trust you, my relationship's going to be hindered. And it doesn't matter what I do. I brought you flowers every day. Yeah, but I don't trust you. You know, you're, you've... 
you've got your phone locked and you're always texting someone and you will never let me look at it. And something's going on. You know, I know I'm hearing things about you. Who are these people on Facebook? I don't know who all these ladies are. You know, what's going on here? Here, I brought you flowers. I got to trust you. I don't care about the flowers. They're nice. But that's not what builds the relationship. It's the trust. And when we take this in our dynamic with God, look, God, I'm going to church. I'm I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying, God. I get up at 8 o'clock every morning. No, I get up at 7 o'clock. I'm now getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning. That should make you all feel inspired. Oh, 6 o'clock. He gets up at 6 and reads his Bible and prays. Wow. Does that make you holy? No. That has nothing to do with my maturity in Christ. What does? How I live my life. My obedience to Him. How I treat other people. How I love. Not what I know. Not what I do. And if what we do is motivated by the relationship, then it's good. But if we try and use the relationship or the things that we do to make the relationship, then we're doing it backwards. And that's exactly what's taking place here when Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Not if they're done this way. See, when David offered to the Lord and he said, I will not give God anything that doesn't cost me something, then it was genuine, then it was from his heart, and then it was pleasing. But if you're trying to use this to get to look good, I have no delight in that. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. And so we could take that again, get Michael's study last week. He did a great job on talking about the legalism, how we try and do things and expect, you know, maturity from the things that we do or don't do, you know, as long as you don't, you know, drink in restaurants and smoke pipes, which I think Michael does both. And so I don't know where we're going to do with him. Um, <laughs> with his bulldog and the hammock. So, we put our focus on the wrong things instead of seeing the heart and what God cares about. And this is a incredible example of what we see taking place here. And then we see Saul's character really starts to come out. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men. And so I gave in to them. Now we're probably getting to the truth here. We're probably getting to what really was going on. See, first, no, they took it. And then, no, I, I killed the... I, you know, you should never ruin a confession or an apology with an excuse. An apology should be, I'm busted, I'm sorry. It shouldn't be, I'm sorry, I did it because... But we're actually seeing why Saul did this, because he was probably afraid in the people's eyes. These men just went out with me and fought. I need to give them something or they're going to be mad at me. And so now we see he's more concerned about what people think than what's right. Oh, there's a lesson there. Do we care more about what people think than what's right? And, oh, if you think that doesn't apply in the church, oh, my gosh, that's where it applies big time. How many people do things in the church because they want people to think themselves a certain way? In fact, the reason we have so many people that have struggles and they don't talk about it is because they're so worried about what people are going to think. Oh, no. What will people think if they find out that I've got this issue? I've got a problem with drinking. I've got a problem with pornography. I've got a problem with these. I'm not talking all about myself, but, you know, when people start talking about these things, you're like, oh, no, I can't let people know the weaknesses I have, because what will happen? They'll, they'll kick me out of the church. They'll look down on me, and because of this, we don't have a healthy church. We don't have the ability to talk about the things that are really going on. You don't have someone you can go up and talk to and say, hey, man, you ever have problems with this? Oh, well, yeah. How do you deal with it? Well, this is, you know, what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm trying to get myself out of there. I don't go to this place anymore because 
every time I do, this happens. I'm trying to stay away from these things. And and now you have an honest discussion. I know whenever I share things, um, when I talk, when I'm honest, people respond. When I was in Vizcaino and I was talking about some of the issues that I've had with my family and talking to a bunch of pastors in that area, and I shared with them, when you take on this role as a pastor, you're going to have a lot of guilt when things happen in your family, and you're going to feel like, oh no, I can't be a pastor because look what's happening with my family and the struggles I have. And I shared some of the things that I've gone through with my kids. And man, this one woman just started breaking out crying. She just started weeping, and she came up to me afterwards. I had about five people come up to me with translators because I didn't speak Spanish, you know, and say, thank you so much for telling us that. Because no one says that. And here we are feeling we don't have the right to try and take this place as a a pastor and teach people because, you know, I've got a son who's got this issue. But you just shared these things and it just set them free. It's like, you're welcome. Glad to go through hard times for you. No problem. But that's exactly what we do. We all go through those things. We all do. Sunday night here at the prayer meeting, man, I can't tell you guys how beautiful it is to hear people pour out their hearts and be able to know some of you better and know what's going on in your life so that I can now see you clearly and pray for you more diligently and more affectionately because I know. And so these are the kinds of things that are important. Saul, again, He wants to blame these men. It's probably the real reason he was afraid of the people rather than wanting to be obedient to God. And verse 25, he goes on, Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him in verse 26, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Ouch! He who is the glory of Israel, it's the only time that phrase is used of God, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. In other words, God has a status and he's not going to change his mind because of you and what you've done. Even though God has regret, he's not going to change his mind. And it's an important thing to see. And Samuel's quick with the response when his garment tore. He didn't say, man! He said, the Lord has torn this from you as well. He, he, he responds, and so Saul, verse 30, replied, I have sinned, but please. Now listen to this. He said this now a few times. I have sinned. What, what's he concerned about? But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And so he said, come back with me so the people will honor me. Again, doesn't that just taint the idea of I'm sorry, I've sinned? I've sinned, but let me look good in front of the people. Doesn't that make you angry when someone does that to you? Hey, I know what I've done is wrong, but don't say anyone, otherwise they'll think bad of me. I I think pretty bad of you right now. And there's times where you get frustrated when you hear something and someone is trying to play it off and you think they're, you're trying to work this so that you don't look bad. And that really bothers me. That makes me want to say things and let you know that's not right. So I am going to say things and let you know that's not right. I, I think I should. I'm not here to embarrass you, but you need to know. And so he goes back with him. Sam, Saul goes back and he worships the Lord. And that word worship takes on a whole different meaning now, doesn't it? Because people can worship. It doesn't mean that it's right. In fact, people worship the wrong things. 
and people that worship the right things but worship them in the wrong way, it just gives a whole new idea of what worship can be in the minds of people and what it might not be actually. Then, verse 32, Samuel said, Bring me Agag king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. <laughs> You're wrong. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. I said that wrong. That was like a Rambo moment right there. I mean, this is like a move me Braveheart moment. As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And then you hear the sword come down and there's blood. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. It's just one of those moments where he kills the guy and settles the matter. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And I think it's important that this chapter ends with this note, that Samuel didn't see Saul again, although he mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What does it mean to us for God to regret something? Does God look at our lives and say, I, I regret that Sam did this? Or I regret that I put Sam over here. I, I regret that Sam was the father of these kids. I regret that Sam was the husband. Oh my gosh, that that is haunting. That is haunting. The thought that God would regret that I was in a position that I'm in is terrifying. And so we have opportunity to either be pleasing to God or make him regret. And that's all up to us. It's our choice. And people, it's all about love. Because you can know the right thing, but if you love the wrong thing, you'll make the wrong choice. So how, how do I do the right thing? You have to love the right thing. You see, maybe you love the drinking more than you really love God, but you just haven't seen it that way. Maybe you love this, whatever it is, more than you really love your relationship with God. And so when it comes time to make a choice, well, should I do this or should I do what I know God wants? Well, I'm going to do this. Why? Because you love that more. And until you recognize that that's what's really happening, you're not going to deal with it. And so it's not like I need to do more. No, you need to love differently. You need to love more. And you need to love what's right more. That's what changes us. Are the things that we love. The things that we care about. And Saul cared about himself, his image. And so his decisions reflected that. If he would have cared more about the things that God wanted, his decisions would have reflected that in his life. And it's a lifetime process. Love is a life process. My wife and I have been married for 28 years now. And I love her more than I did 28 years ago and in a totally different way. We've had to grow in love. And we've had good times and we've had some bad times. That's part of growing and loving. But it keeps going and it keeps changing and it keeps going and it keeps changing. My relationship with Jesus is nothing like it was 10 years ago. And I hope it's nothing like it will be 10 years from now. I hope 10 years from now I'll look back and say, oh man, 
I'm glad I'm where I'm at now, not where I was then, because it's always got to grow. That's what a relationship does. It interacts, it grows, and it's honest. And so, any thoughts on this chapter, or things that stood out to you, or things you don't know, what am I talking about in them? True. Any other thoughts? Nada. It's my Spanish. It was in Mexico for a week. <laughs> what did you learn? Nada. Let's pray. So, Father, having looked at this chapter, what sticks? What do we take away from here? Where does it take us in our relationship with you? Lord, it's not enough to learn. What we need to do is grow. And so, God, help us to take this information and allow it to turn into growth. Help us to take what we know and allow it to become faith. Trust in you. And even though we don't fully understand you, even at the beginning of this chapter, why would you do that, God? Lord, there's going to come a time when we need to completely trust you. And a lot of times the reason we don't obey is because we don't trust you. We, we think that there is something else that is going to be more fulfilling in our life than what you have told us or what things you require of us. And so because we don't trust you, we try and we put our trust in something else. But God, there comes a place where we have to recognize my, my life will be most fulfilled when I am surrendered to the one who gives life. And so I pray tonight that we would do just that, that we would not be as Saul was and trying to fill this thing in us. His was for recognition, recognition. ours might be for something else, but may we really want the sincere and truthful obedience to you. Lord, what if Saul didn't? What if Saul didn't make you regret? What if he would have been the lineage of the Messiah because he was a man of faith? What if he was pleasing to you and was after your own heart? God, a monumental event took place in just one situation. Lord, that's true for each of us. May we recognize the choices before us and understand that the repercussions go on and on and on. That it's never too late to start doing what is right. Lord, may we take that step of faith and trust today. And may we show the fruit of what that choice is tomorrow and the years after. And thank you for this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.